Board Games as Devotion with special guest Dan Thoreau on this episode of Board Game Faith, the bi-weekly podcast exploring the intersection of religion, spirituality, and board gaming. My name is Daniel Hilty. And I'm Kevin Taylor. I'm Dan Thoreau. Yes. Dan, welcome. We're so, so glad excited. to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, we're going to be finding out more about Dan's story in just a little bit. Uh, but first, uh, we're going to try to begin our episode as we often do with a game on this podcast about games and spirituality. Um, today, we are going to uh, revisit... Uh, um, a, a, a fun moment we had several episodes back where we try to name everything in a list or as many items as we can on a list in three minutes uh, set in some randomly generated improv situation. Today, Dan, Kevin, and I uh, have in front of us a list of the top 50 games on BoardGameGeek.com as of January 30th, 2023. BoardGameGeek.com arguably the definitive website on about board games. And um, we're going to see how many of these games we can work into our conversation in three minutes um, based on um, some interaction in a, an improvised uh, skit situation. And I, I need to let you know, Dan and Kevin, um, I, I chose uh, three randomly generated um, scenarios before coming on the air here, and I put them in um, in this jar on pieces of paper, and and the three uh, situations that are in here are um, at the barber or the hair salon. <laughs> I, I'm hoping that because we're we're all famous for our coiffures. Yes. Um, or number two at the zoo, or number three at the hardware store. Okay. Mm. Does that does that all sound good? Okay. Okay. Pulling for hardware store. Come on. All right. Store. All right. All right. Um, and then we're going to uh, we're going to do this for three minutes. Uh, once it come once once this comes out. All right. You ready? Here we go. If I wish we were all present in the same room, I'd have you I'd have you draw out a piece of paper. Okay. Here we and go. The Academy go. Award goes to goes to Kevin and Dan for being awesome. All right. Here we go. They are they go to what is this? What is this? At the yes, hardware store. Yes, Yay. Yes, yes. Okay. All right. So we're going to do this without Bell, right, Kevin? Yes. And why don't we okay. why don't we do a total score? Like okay. for this it's, episode. We'll see how many we can so it's a cooperative. All right, this is a cooperative game. Seeing how many of the fifty we can do in three minutes at the hardware store. Mm, begin. I'm looking for some brass fittings. <laughs> well, uh, uh just come on uh uh, over here, uh, I I, uh, I think we uh, we have some. Oh, oh no, I just dropped him. Clank, Mary, what was that? Mary, Mary Kaibo, what was that? Mary. <laughs> <laughs> All right, come to Cascadia, come to Cascadia, come to Cascadia. Uh, what exactly do you need these brass fittings for, my good sir? I'm British, apparently. I, I need to lock away some things. I have too many bones. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Brass fittings are great for locking away too many bones. I hope it helps you get to the root of your problem. Head west, sir. The west aisle, there's a small trail. Aisle 4B, the Great Western Trail. You'll find 
the brass fittings for too many bones. Mary Kaiba will take you there. And Mary, I think you'll find him right next to the scythes too, if if you uh, if you're looking for him. <laughs> Hardware store selling scythes. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, you're setting me at ease because of the pandemic. I came here expecting to discover a nemesis, and instead, I feel a great deal of concordia with you. You know, I really feel like we've become fast friends as well. We should hold a a, a feast, you know, a feast for um, um, you, Kevin, my uh, my brother Odin, <laughs> who used to be the general manager. From now he used on, to be the general manager. Right. From now on, we're known crew. as the crew. Oh, yes, are, I was just are. thinking that the crew, <laughs> the crew shall feast. You know, it's a good thing um, that we're not. Um, looking for brass fittings in, in our branch store in Puerto Rico. I hear that they're running short of them there. Um, though, um, I don't know. Perhaps we can find them in... I don't know what to say. Some <laughs> underwater cities? That's horrible. <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> right near the uh, toads and old men. So the croak and owls. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, sometimes I don't understand what we're talking about. I feel like I'm on Mars. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to the root of the issue soon. So yeah, just, just yeah. move on forward, sir. Oh, Frank. there's the bell. There's the bell. We, oh. we just so there's the three minutes. We did the three minutes. So what were you going to go for, Dan? Thoreau? Yeah, did you oh, have I, I was just going to say, what a barrage of puns uh. this has been. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll count that. We'll count that. I was, I was actually think, I was trying to think of how to say. Do you guys want to go for a drink at the barrage? But uh, I wasn't sure. You guys were looking at the same yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was wasn't a real work. cascade. It was fail. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yes. Yes. I couldn't keep up with you. I was out of sync. It was a anachrony. Um, we have yes. we had one, we two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Eighteen of the top fifty games we were able to name. Okay. That's almost half. That might be more than I've played. <laughs> Out of those top fifty. <laughs> yeah. Let's, That's, I'm curious. Yeah. Well, I think every, well huh. done, everyone. That was good. So, Dan, you don't kind of look over this as a guide to maybe future purchases? That's not how you pick games? Uh, it isn't. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever really even looked at this top 50 list. I, mm. I'm, I'm honestly pretty shocked that Gloomhaven is number one. I, I think Gloomhaven is an excellent game. Uh, I think this shows that there's a lot of nerds on Board Game Geek. <laughs> Who knew, right? <laughs> Like I would think, like Candyland or you know Operation would be number one if you if we pulled people on the street. Yeah, what the assumption would be? Yeah, right, right. Well, the I kids, wonder... the little kids, don't have accounts on Board Game Geek. I think you're right. We need my little Board Game Geek. Oh, my dot com. Yeah, right. Well, Dan, why don't we more formally welcome you and introduce uh, you to uh, our our listeners. We're so grateful to have you here. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Um, 
Sure. I uh, my name is Dan Thoreau. I live over here in Salt Lake City. Um, I, oof, I <laughs> I don't know what to say about myself. Uh, I write about board games. Um, I consider myself a board game critic. I also teach um, history at the university level, um, and I love hanging out with my wife and two daughters. And that's pretty much my life right now. is It's just very busy, very full, but in a good way. This sounds like a good life. I like Dan it. Dan has an excellent and really influential newsletter and podcast, Space Biff. And I was consternated for a while about this name, and then I finally dug out its origins, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, so superheroes fighting, pal Biff, right? And the question of what people fighting in space would sound like space biff yes that's that's right that's okay. so, some, sometimes people think it might come from bill watterson's calvin and hobbs mm. but that's spaceman spiff that's not space biff um mm. when i first started writing my site i really didn't know what i wanted it to be and so it was a placeholder name and by the time i got around to considering <laughs> changing it um it was just too late it, it was, stuck yeah people were already referring to space biff so um that's on yes. me. Space Biff, B-I-F-F dot com. Yep. Good stuff. And it, yeah, I just a second what Kevin says. Yeah, the, I we're, we're grateful to I think it was um, I think it was Grenadier BG, our listener who first introduced us to your podcast. So thanks, Grenadier BG. And mm-hmm. then Kevin, I think you listened first and said, this is really amazing. And, and I got to listen to several episodes as well recently on a, a long trip too, and yeah, we were telling Dan before this, we started recording, it's just really a great podcast. So our listeners, we really encourage you to to check it out. Um, Dan is 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 um, uh, thoughtful and engaging and interesting, and his, his interviews always just um, are just everything I'd want to hear on a board game podcast. So anyway, I, I want to like, <laughs> well, thank I want to grow up kind. to be you, Dan. You're, you're, you're really good. So... <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, check it out if 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 you would like to check out a great podcast for our listeners. It's Space Biff Sp- Spacecast. So today, I think we're we're going to be talking about a theme that we heard on one of your episodes. Um, Dan, would you just kind of mentioned it in passing, which is this idea of board games as devotion. That I, I remember one of your your episodes, you, you talked about that this is kind of an idea that has. Mm, uh, fascinated you for a little while or at least something you've thought about from time to time board games is devotion and um we thought that'd be a at least an interesting topic to begin exploring together um uh, yeah what does it mean to for board games as devotion and i know kevin you've you've have some you've been thinking about this too but what are some thoughts on board I games have, as devotion? but i want to hear a dan what did you mean dan thorough you know i i think what i meant is that it works a little on a couple of levels, and so I'm going to sound very silly. One of the first board games I ever played was a variant of Settlers of Catan called Settlers of Zarahemla. And what this is, uh, for those who don't know anything about uh, the culture I grew up in, which is the Mormon faith tradition, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more commonly known as Mormon, um, is... The centerpiece of the Mormon religion is the Book of Mormon, which is this really wacky story. Um, I recommend, (laughs) 
I recommend you read it. But maybe maybe take some grain of salt when you do, um, because it centers around this family, and I ostensibly a family of Jewish people who flee from Jerusalem around the time of uh, the collapse to the Babylonians, and they come. Oh, where do they go to America? It's it's quite the story. And they create a city called Zarahemla. And so that's where the title of this board game came from. It was a oh, okay. Mormon-licensed version of Settlers of Catan. And I didn't even know there was a Settlers of Catan as a kid because we were busy playing Settlers of Zarahemla in which, uh, you know, when you when you get a card in that game, it has like a little scripture quote on it that you're supposed to read. And in, in addition to building roads and towns and cities, you're also building a temple and so it has all of these religious elements in it so as a young person who came from a family that uh generally had a negative outlook on board games because they were satanic um i the one of the few games i was allowed to play was overtly religious now i don't know if i would call that devotional right i don't know if we were i don't know if anyone who designed this game was really crafting this with devotion in mind, I don't think that there was. Uh, I don't. I, I don't think there were strong feelings about. Are we devoting this to God? Are we f- expressing loyalty to God? Are we consecrating something? I don't think any of that was happening. Um, but from a very young age, I had this idea implanted in my mind that board games could be religious artifacts. Um, and and years later, I was actually very surprised because board games were either toys or they were religious artifacts to me. Um, now, when I grew up a little bit and uh, learned more and more about, uh, and I'm sure some of these are familiar ideas, like the magic circle or the illusory attitude. Yep. yep. You know, the, the things that we do when we play board games, when we agree to follow a ritual, in effect, uh, to follow rules that don't seem to matter in the real world, uh, to pursue goals that are totally disconnected from the goals that normally we pursue. Uh, for survivability, um, I actually think there are quite a few parallels between game playing and religious observance. Um, and some of those parallels, I think, are really quite surprising and exciting. Um, some of them are historical, even anthropological. And uh, so that's what I mean when I say a game can be devotion. At least that's sort of the first layer. When we get beyond that, I think recently, as board games have become more and more accepted as a tool of expression, I think we've seen a few game designers really lean into being able to use board games to express something deep about themselves. And... um, you know, we see we see so many different expressions. Just very recently, I played a game uh, by Taylor Shuss, a very talented designer, called Stonewall Uprising, which is very much about queer identity. And this is, you know, you, you rewind 10 years, no one's going to make a board game like that, right? At least, not seriously. It might be a joke. It might be a party game or something. But as an ex- as a serious examination of identity or deep-held belief, this is a new phenomenon. And there are just so many board games that are doing this, including with religious belief. Um, There are three big examples that I've written about over the past few years, all of which that I've called um, games about devotion. Um, And I don't know if you want to get into them now or or space it out. Go for it. Yeah, um, go for it. Okay, so um, a few years back, uh, Ben Madison designed a game called The Mission. 
Um, and Ben Madison actually comes also from the Mormon faith tradition, although in a little bit parallel to the one I was raised in. Um, he grew up in what we call the RLDS tr- tradition. Um, they're the ones who did not flee west with Brigham Young. They're the ones who stayed with Emma, Emma Hale Smith uh, back in Nauvoo. And so they, they tend to be located there still. Um, they're very interesting. I know quite a few people in that tradition, very good people. Um, and and so Ben Madison comes from that faith tradition, and he's since left. He, uh, he now is, I think, Episcopalian. Um, but his game, The Mission, spans um, the first thousand years of Christianity. And what he's trying to do is pour all of his awe at the early history of Christianity into one board game. And I think his history some, sometimes has some hiccups. I think it's a little bit cleaned up more than I would have done it. But I think that it does a great job of uh, expressing some of the awe that he felt when he went to uh, Turkey and was looking at these great uh, Christian history sites, the awe that he felt and in a way that eclipsed his Mormon faith tradition and and the way he tells it is that it it gave him a bit of an awakening that the Mormon faith tradition was perhaps a little arrogant in thinking of itself as the culmination of Christianity as opposed to going and seeing these you know these great edifices from people who fought and defended and died for Christianity for hundreds of years and he just felt this overwhelming sense of awe and humility and and again, I don't always agree. I, I tend to be a, a disagreer. I disagree with things left and right. So I, I look at his 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 experience, and I have to remind myself to treat it validly. Um, but I love that he takes that experience and pours it into this game. And there are a couple of other examples. Very recently, I played a game by uh, a fellow named Jeff Warrender, a very talented designer, The Acts of the Evangelists, um, which is about... Uh, tradency in the early biblical tradition so um, you go out and you are um, you are a chronicler trying to write a testament about the life of Jesus and so you go out and you speak to eyewitnesses and you take all these conflicting accounts and you put them into a tableau and it's a very interesting game and um, and that I, I also consider that an act of devotion the third one would be Amabel Holland's Nicaea um, which I think is m- actually a field I'm a little more comfortable with because it's so critical. Um, so Amabel, having grown up as a trans woman in uh, a Christian faith tradition and feeling both the impulse toward the divine, but also a bit of horror at the way the divine is often used by those in power to get away with things. Um, and so to look at the Council of Nicaea critically, uh, to, to treat it almost as a uh, to treat it crassly. And again, it's one of those things where I think that it's very easy to have a knee-jerk reaction to it. Um, I know I have some friends who, who value what came out of Nicaea, and so they look at the game that Amabel has produced, and they, they feel uh, a bit of revulsion toward it. But I think, again, it, it, it's exhibiting something valid in the sense that it's about deep-held emotion. And I think it's a, about looking at... Uh, crass politics and asking a question that I think I think every 
every sincere religious person should be grappling with at some level. What happens when crass reality and the secular butts up against something that we consider divine? Can good things come out of that or, or is it polluted? And I think that it's a game that digs into this tension without really resolving it. Um, it raises the question, but it isn't ever so trite as to answer that question. I was fascinated hearing you talk about Amabel Holland's Nicaea on a, one of your episodes that listened to. I've never played it. You know, uh, would you mind just for those of us who haven't played it, like me, saying a little bit how how does she explore these issues in the in the format of a board game? And and, and maybe also Nicaea as a background. That's that's a famous. Yes. Church council meeting, right? So maybe unpacking historical background, because some listeners may not know that. Yeah. Thank yeah, you, so so we have the Council of Nicaea and you can tell you can tell that story in different ways. Uh there's sort of the traditional devotional way. Um but the way that Amabel approaches it is that so we have the Emperor Constantine who he has decided to use Christianity, to join Christianity, to unify his empire. And in Amabel's view, the way she proposes this game, this is, this is very contingent. Um, it's, it's, it, it's a convenient thing, because the Roman Empire in this time period is not very unified. And so the Emperor Constantine gets, he converts to Christianity, he wins battles in the name of Christianity, he's using it as a political force and legalizing it. But at the same time, it seems these Christian bishops just cannot stop arguing about weird esoteric questions that ordinary people just never ask, like about the substance of God or about the proper time that Easter should be observed. And, and these problems are a distraction because the whole reason Constantine has done this is for the sake of unity. So Constantine is going to hold a council and, every, and, and invite all of these bishops in to debate and put to rest these doctrinal issues of esoterica. And in the game, one of the things that I think rubs certain religious people the wrong way is it's a negotiation game where you go in and it's all, you're also sort of bidding on stocks where the stocks are different answers to these uh, theological conundrums, but they have no value, no inherent value. So if you're debating, for instance, the substance of Christ, it doesn't really come down on one side or the other. It doesn't care. It doesn't say this is correct. This isn't the correct answer. And this is the wrong answer. They're just, here's two answers. And what is correct and incorrect really comes down to who votes for what. Wow. And so you come out and you invest in, uh, you know, I'm going to say that I value um, w one answer to this problem. You're not actually having a theological debate. You're having a popularity contest. And at the end of the day, whoever has built themselves into the most popular leader is going to win. But at the same time, there's a bit of fear, an undercurrent there, because if you, if, if, if you treat someone too poorly, if you drive them out too much, um, they might turn around and create a schismatic branch of Christianity, and they might end up winning instead, because they use this period of divisiveness to their own purposes. And so this story ends up saying, can something good 
come out of base politics. Um, is something like the Council of Nicaea, um, is the Nicene Creed, are these things that are rooted in, you know, why do, why do we inherit them as statements of belief? Do we really know where they came from? The more that we study these, these events, it seems like there was a lot of base politicking going on. Um, our Aryan heretics is Arianism, um, you know, the, the belief that basically lost at the Council of Nicaea. Are they, what is heresy? What is orthodoxy? And this, this, this game asks all of these questions, I think, actually rather beautifully and simply, um, and they can be incredibly uncomfortable. Hmm. But the reason I think it's valid is because this is um, a young trans woman exploring these questions from a perspective, from the very nature of her identity, is by many uh, creedal Christians considered heretical. Right. Interesting. So you're thinking um, of the everything the about her identity creator, doesn't conform. Yeah. For instance, and I don't know how this is in your faith tradition, but Mormonism, the faith tradition I grew up in, um, Mormonism is in an interesting place because Mormonism, uh, a few decades ago, released a document called a proclamation to the world on the family. And in that document, Mormonism came out in defense of the nuclear family against, like, homosexuality, all sorts of queer identities. Now, the irony here is that this document has never been canonized. Um, the church has actually never gone to the effort to pass this document into the level of Scripture. It's basically a legal document. Um. But this document is endlessly discussed by, by mainline Mormon church leaders as though it were very important. It's taught in Sunday schools, twice a year at general conference. Somebody is going to bring it up. Um, so this is, this is treated as scripture in the Mormon tradition, even though it's never actually gone through the hurdles of becoming scripture. And so it's very interesting that, for instance, in my faith tradition, I was grown up, uh, sorry, I grew up in a tradition that demonized homosexual people. And it still does to a degree. Now, it's softened somewhat. And if you ask a lot of observers, Mormonism is on the path to uh, softening a lot of that language, overcoming what the proclamation on the family has done. But that, that, that proclamation has done significant damage. So um, I've spoken in the past on other podcasts that I volunteer with um, LGBTQ plus youth in the Mormon faith tradition, and um, we get a lot of suicide. We get a lot of suicide attempts. We get a lot of depression and anxiety. Um, for instance, a couple, of, I think it was one year ago, two years ago in November, um, we had one of the church's apostles actually get up and talk about how he was sick of having to debate the gay issue, and he wanted to hear more musket fire from the church's defenders directed at, the, at those who are what we would call queer allies. And, um, and that was a very unfortunate metaphor for a group that is constantly threatened physically, often at the end of uh, a gun barrel, to, for a church leader to give tacit approval to a firearms metaphor. 
Um, and unfortunately, sure. that that led to a great deal of uh, distress in the queer Mormon community. I remember just a few hours after that talk was given, I went to the hospital and sat with a young woman who had ingested um, a great deal of um, medication because she felt that someone who she considers a prophet of God had told her that she, it would be better for her to die than to commit the sin of having her identity. And so I think something like Nicaea that Amabel Holland has designed is a very uncomfortable, but it's a necessary intervention into the world of those of us who, who come from what we might consider a very normative religious experience. Um, so all of these games are approaching what I would call devotion. Uh, board games is devotion from radically different angles. Right. So you have Jeff Warrender, who is, in a, in a way, giving a <laughs> what I would call, and this is very loaded, a reactionary stance saying, well, the four Gospels were written by eyewitnesses or amanuenses who knew eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. Um, we have Ben Madison, who's giving us a very cleaned up portrait of Christianity as a as a sense of devotion and awe. And then we have Amabel Holland's Nicaea which is a devotion that's very questioning and cynical, all these different angles. But I think that they are all accomplishing something marvelous. So that's what I mean by games as devotion. And sorry to give such a long rambling answer, but that's probably oh the best I can do. No, that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I, thank you so much for, for sharing, Dan. No, I'm, I'm just... I'm contemplating. So it seems to me, you know, like across the board of those three examples, games as devotion perhaps means, um, at least for those last three examples, um, an expression, an expression of someone's lived experience of, of, um, of the church in their lives, of, of institutional religion in their lives. And if we think of devotion, I, mean, I guess the core, the you know, the core concept of devotion is kind of you know being committed or loyal or you know or, or this sense of you know hopelessly devoted to you, you know that kind of that kind of that kind of sense. It's it's maybe a, a an insistence to engage with that reality, both in the beauty and the horror of it. Kind of is that is that what I hear you saying in, in terms of one way games can be devotion that it's it's an insistence in engaging with the reality of spirituality and religion both in the yeah in in the beauty and the ugliness of it is that what i mean yeah i i think that's a great way to encapsulate it yeah Hmm. do you think i love everything you said although i'm not sure i agree that those debates are esoteric kind of outs because in my experience people find them quite interesting when you start asking the question of well who's jesus talking to when he prays like if he's just god then who's this other person he's well that's god too well so like some of it I, i i don't know I'm probably betraying my own interest because I find it interesting. So, maybe, and you're certainly right that lots of people are just trying to put food on the table today and in the ancient world. They're, it, it, they don't care. But I do find people find it 
I, I don't know. It, it's 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 not as a it's not as esoteric to me as say mechanical engineering. Sure, right. Sure. Like like my right. car just works, and I've offloaded whatever whatever they do with batteries or whatever. Like I don't know. There's plus and minus, and stuff moves and right. But um, if you're religious, I think these questions naturally arise. Of well, you know, what do we do about all these? Are not in Nicaea, but a question such as. What do we do about all the genealogies in the Bible? Are all scriptures of equal worth? Um, you know, if God is Father, is God male? That kind of questions are, are kind of—I um, don't know. I, I think a lot of people actually find them interesting. Not everyone. You know, what I, are your thoughts? I, I, I agree with you. Actually, when I, when I say esoterica, I'm, I'm principally meaning esoterica in the fifth century. Um, okay. I, I think that one of the things that's so interesting about having this sort of discussion is the things that we bring uh, as, as assumptions to the topic. Um, an example for me would be I often teach a course where we talk about transitions in Christianity, uh, where what we do is we look at the history of early Christianity, and one of our central questions is, how did we become Christian? And it's a very difficult class because we have to work backwards. We, we work with, we start with a more recent council and we say, okay, so the Christianity that you recognize is here and we're going to look at the issue that became you and see that the Christianity that went into that flashpoint was very different from the Christianity that came out of it. It may have even been unrecognizable to the Christianity that went into it. So, for instance, to use the example of Nicaea, you, at a certain point, Christianity is sort of a wild west of ideas. And you have, you know, you've got adoptionists and you have Montanists and you have all of these different sects and none of them are really considered heretical because there's no orthodoxy. Right. But we look at it from our perspective and we say, well, of course, the Nicenes were correct Whereas the Arians and the Nestorians and, and the, even the Eastern Orthodox, there's an assumption we make, right, about, about Easter. We make assumptions that, well, the Catholic perspective was more correct, even though we have, you know, we've got plenty of Orthodox churches today that on certain issues do have radically different creedal beliefs. And so, and, and we're making an assumption even then. So what we do in that course is we work backward and backward and backward. And as we do that, the Christianity becomes more and more dissimilar to what we think is important. And the arguments become more dissimilar. And I, I think it's a, it's a fascinating course to do as an excavation because it shows us that we bring so much with us whenever we do history. So I absolutely agree with you. I think that if you were to ask somebody today, why is, why, why does God seem to present as male so often? Uh, why, why didn't Jesus come as a woman? Why is it, why do we not pray to God the mother? And I think that one of the reasons we're asking that now is because we're coming from a world that assumes that women are worth engaging mm -hmm. potentially as deities. And I think that's a positive development. But if you rewind to a certain point, I think that people, they would just say, well, of course God is a man because men are the ones who are important and hold power and hold sway over their households and even have names. 
I mean, in the Roman world, in the time of Jesus and afterward, most women were not given first names. Mm. And so why should a woman be God? And the irony being that the Roman system had plenty of female gods. Right. And so I, I think that that question is incredibly relevant right now from a feminist reading. And we are all feminist from a certain perspective, right? I, I assume we all believe that our wives can vote <laughs> you know, or own a credit card. That was only legalized in the latter half of the last century. Right. I, I don't know what it, what the, do you call it, it when you believe that your wife is infinitely more competent in everything, but that's that's what I am. Than <laughs> I am. That's that's uh, no, anyway. Daniel, you're just going. lazy. You're just lazy. Go, or I'm just lazy. That's right. But <laughs> right, anyway, keep, right. keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you yeah. know, I I absolutely agree with you, Kevin. There, I have I you know, especially in talking with, um, with with young people who have suffered terrible abuse at the hands of a male only priesthood, which is the current. Uh, status in the LDS church and they say well why don't women have the priesthood and I'm and and for me I'm going I agree with you it's absurd but from from but that this is a question that is relevant now and wasn't quite as relevant I don't think it was irrelevant sure. but it wasn't quite as irrelevant as relevant when the priesthood with that our church my faith tradition uses was first formed it just wasn't and we're taking that assumption, and it's a good assumption, but we're applying it to different modes of thinking going back and back and back. So when I say esoteric, I'm really only referring to the, the things that average people would be asking in the 5th century. Right. And right. I, think they were, I think they were somewhat different questions. I think that their questions would be more along the lines of, well, why is, it, why is this God even better than, mm -hmm. than my pagan gods? And that's the sort of conflict we see in the fifth century is they're not really asking questions about substance. They're asking they're they're in a very pluralistic society and saying, well, what do you mean? I can't worship Jesus and Zeus. Mm -hmm. That's an absurdity. And that's the sort of question I think that would matter a lot to an ordinary person in the fifth century. Whereas, you know, questions about like homo ocean probably don't matter at all. Right, right. And people are probably Arians just because they liked Arius, or their cousin was Arian, right? They they weren't they weren't they weren't going in and examining their beliefs and then deciding whether they checked the boxes or not. They were probably just going with cultural issues or just deep personality issue type things that just what most people do. It's out of habit or what they're attracted to, or yeah, I mean, maybe the Aryans had a better basketball gym or something. Well, and think about how confusing it would be if you were living in Alexandria and you had Arius and Athanasius, both Alexandrians, and they kind of both have their clients. They both have people who adhere to their, to, to them. And, you know, like with the Protestant Reformation, one of the things we find is a lot of the time, people's religion is just dictated by who they're near. Right. And they'll go and they will fight and die. And I think that raises some very serious questions about power and about devotion mm -hmm. and about is, is if there is a God, is God honoring both sides of that equation? Because both sides are going out and praying. They have, they're being fired up by preachers and bishops. Um, what what is a loving God doing with this mess? And I think that's one of the places that a, a game like Nicaea can be very enlightening, because it asks it, it asks some hard questions that I think as as 
as religious people, it's very difficult to confront. Hmm. Has a board game ever changed your mind about something or changed your heart about something? And I'm asking this, I'm asking this of myself too. I'm trying to think through it. Have, have we ever, or has it contributed to a change of heart or mind or spirit in any of us? I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about this too. That's a great question. I, you know, for, I don't know if it's changed my mind. It, it's helped me understand myself and others, whether you're comfortable with lying in a bluffing game or can you lose with grace? So there's sort of that personality, moral fiber. It's helped me deal with some of those things. Has it changed my mind? I, and, and some of the games like Cuba Libre or um, Pax Pamir do get you to think about how little you know about the rest of the world. So um, I, I, it, it, I did not realize the casinos were such a factor in Cuba's history. Right. So I played that game and I'm like, oh, they're here, right? And I guess I kind of knew from the Godfather movie, but not hadn't really thought about it. But I don't know if it's really changed it hasn't changed me like a like some books have changed me. Or probably seeing Star Wars at age ten just <laughs> forever left me, you know, a that's, true believer in this. That's changed space. that's changed that changed all of us. Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, I don't know. What do you what what are your thoughts? That's a hard question. I, I'm trying to think if that is the case with other art forms as well. I think um, books. Write books? Don't books have a certain power? I think they really do. really transform lives. But, but I'm not sure about movies. Remember Mel Brooks? Uh, Mel Brooks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Mel Gibson's The Passion. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> the Passion of the Christ was going to transform the country, and it kind of was really popular, and now nobody watches it anymore. So I don't think film has the power the books have had. You know, I don't know. Um, there's this book, A Theory of Fun for Game Design by Rafe Koster um, that that ends, which would be great to talk about on, this, on the podcast sometime too, but uh, which ends with this question, uh, how can we elevate board games to... to or, or how can we elevate the perception of board games to the level of art, the, of everything, you know, of everything, of movies and books and 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 um, and, and theater, um, and you know, part of part of his argument is that that elevating board games to to the same level we elevate other art means the development of folks like you, Dan, who who uh, who, who give very thoughtful uh, critique and criticism of of board game as an art and, and take, and take it seriously. But I, and, and, and he, he ends the book with this question, you know, that it can board games, um, create a, a meaningful change in, in life in, in ways that maybe perhaps other art can as well. Um, I guess maybe that's, that's, maybe that's a debatable assertion in itself, but, um, uh, anyway, I, but yeah, it's, it's a, you want to say something, Dan? I, I think they can. I think we have to understand that a different, every medium has its own demands and its own opportunities, right? I, I, I think we would all agree on that. Um, with that said, I think that once we take that into account, 
once we're accounting for those opportunities and limitations, I think board games really can open up. And I think a lot of it just has to do with the design uh, intentions. Are Is this game being designed to be sort of fluffy and fun? Um, I think we, you know, the, the Euro game movement transformed the landscape of board games and for the better. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that was that the Euro game movement did that we still we're getting over this, um, but it's still having some unfortunate trickle down effects is this idea that settings don't matter. Right. That, you know, you can have a game about colonizing Catan. Exactly. And yep. and the game says nothing about colonizing. Um, right. Even it, it doesn't even really say anything about whitewashed colonizing, right? It, it, yeah. it, it doesn't say anything about frontier hardship. It certainly doesn't say anything about indigenous displacement, even though the first edition rulebook had natives in it. Uh, I as didn't one, know that. Yeah, as one of the images. Huh. Um, and so oh, it's gosh. not as though you're, you're colonizing. It, you know, there's this presumption, you're, well, you're colonizing land without people. Um, well, you know, first of all, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> but but secondly, the the game rulebook does seem to acknowledge that there are people and there are bandits, which the presence of bandits <laughs> kind of presumes a power structure. I mean, so like, but the game, I don't actually think it's fair to assess Catan on those terms necessarily, because it's just so clearly just a setting that that is so divorced from any of the questions it could ask, as opposed to you go and play something like John Company, which is about colonization and it's explicitly about that it's about it's about the thrill of colonization the economic incentives of colonization but also about the the humanizing reality and the horror of colonization and it is trying to be about those things and so the game designer of of Catan you know did it, I pushed the hobby forward but it doesn't bear the same sort of analysis that John Company does, or really that a lot of modern colonial euros do, where they want to get closer and closer to a sort of historical verisimilitude without really grappling with the horrific realities, um, in many cases, not even the banal realities of those settings. Now, like, so, for example, I, I, I think there's a wonderful example. It was one of the best games of last year. It was a title published by Hollandspiel. Um, and this, it was called Heading Forward um, by John Du, uh, I don't know if he pronounces his name Du Bois or Du Bois, but John Du, du Bois's game Heading Forward, which is about having suffered a traumatic brain injury. And now you are in recovery. It's a solitaire game in which you play cards representing you trying to recover from a brain injury. And so you can only play a certain number of cards and you have limited energy represented wow. by spoons because of the spoon theory. And and you're trying to improve, but maybe you improve to the point where now you can remember more. And so you're drawing more cards. Oh, but you don't have enough energy. You don't have enough spoons to actually play those cards. And oh my goodness, that's frustrating that your body is healed in one way, but not in another. So you can't keep pace with yourself. And then the game opens up and it's a social commentary too because it turns out you're on a time limit because your insurance company has said you must make a certain amount of progress before a particular date or you are cut off Gosh. and and this game That's brutal. i think it has helped me open my sphere of empathy a little bit now i don't think that means it's changed my heart 
<laughs> in the sense that I didn't have a revelation. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't have a Scrooge moment. Um, but I think that one of the reasons we engage with art isn't always to have that about face. It's just to expand our sphere of empathy. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think well that, this is why right in the circle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To say, yeah. you know, I hadn't really paid much attention to people who had had brain injuries. If anything, you know, the natural impulse is to feel a little kind of weirded out by them. But to to have a game that proposes that, no, they're trying very hard. Um, you don't know this, the circumstances behind a person's life. It's possible they're suffering from a predatory social system. At the same time, they're suffering from an injury. I think it has helped me to expand my sphere of empathy just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, even into an area where I was already trying to be conscious, yeah. just by showing me a little bit extra that I wouldn't have been witness to otherwise. Go ahead, Kevin. One of the things that you're commenting makes me think of that I have read and thought about. Books have this wonderful ability of you identify with certain characters. And, of course, you're chewing through the words. And you can stop and rewind and go forward in a marvelous way. Plays, movies, and TV don't really have that because you can't get in someone's mind. And you can't really stop it. And you kind of can now with... With uh, Netflix, you can go back, but in general, we kind of we might pause it and take a bathroom break. But you pretty much just go forward and you're done. You don't have that flipping backward in a page experience. So, as Dan was talking about widening the sort of the mental circle or landscape, it seems to me board games are more like books because you can pause and you can kind of think things through and you identify as someone mm. in this game. Mm. Whereas when you see a play, mm. I mean, there's people you like and you identify with them, but you're not in their head because they're out there and you can't sort of pause or deliberate because it just keeps going. Now you do get that communal aspect in plays. And some people have written about that. Like it, a, a theater can be like a church service because everyone's watching this thing, you know, the mass begins and it ends type. So, so theater is a sacrament type thing. That's but, so, uh, yeah, and it's really interesting. It's, it's fascinating. And part of this is there's a theologian who structured his whole theology on the idea of drama, and that's Baltazar's theodrama um, that was kind of influential at one point. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you think about the genre of art, and it does seem like board games are doing something more like books. They get us into someone. So yeah, and, Dan, you'll... Yeah, no, 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 that's... Dan, that's um, <laughs> I... I want to just, I just call me Daniel number two. I want to, I want to be known as that from, from here on out. Even after, even after this episode is done, if you could just keep calling me Daniel number two, that would be great. Um, But yeah, no, I, I mean, I I love that, that comparison to, uh, to books that in a way, I mean, of course, obviously in many ways, books have certain advantages, but, but. But there's some advantages to the game stream that in that, you know, you can pause, you can think about what you're doing, but then. You could also play it again yeah. and play it from a different way, right? I mean, you, right. you can you can like well, you know, it, it it allows you to experience life in this 
representational way, but you could try something different next time, right? And and explore even a different space than a book would maybe not would not necessarily allow you to you know because because the narrative is set when you're going through a book, right? But 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 you can you can change the narrative next time that you play a board game. It reminds me also of a, a previous guest, Dan Ali Karar. We've had a couple times talking about. Um, um, Muslim representation in board games, and and this this is part of his argument as well. He says it's important to have um, um, a variety of representation in board games. But in this case, he was talking about Muslim representation in board games. He says it's important to have Muslim representation in board games, not so that people who are Muslim can play it and say, "Oh, here's somebody like me," but so that people who are not Muslim can play the board game and 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 this way kind of enter in just for a very brief, very surface, very fleeting moment into the life of this Muslim character in you know in a yeah. board game. And yeah, yeah. I think it's important for everybody to have heroes who are like them and heroes who are dissimilar to them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and it's for that. very different yeah. reasons. Yeah. I think yeah. I think that we have heroes who are like us because it teaches us how we can be courageous and good in our circumstance. And we have heroes who are unlike us so that we can empathize with people who are not like us. Uh, I, I think that's tremendously important. And that's one of the, you know, it's funny. I, I, I went to a movie uh, about, I don't know, Black Panther or something. And one of my friends was going, oh, this movie wasn't for me. And I'm going, yeah, isn't that great? It isn't for us. Uh, you know, that's fine. That's great. Not everything has to be for me. And in that way, it is for us, isn't it? Because it's letting us experience a, a work of fantasy for somebody who is very unlike us. That's positive. I, I like what you're saying, too, about this idea of being able to rewind through repeat plays and explore mm-hmm. counterfactuals. I think this is one of the places where board games are just so powerful. And part of it is because I think board games, are they struggle when it comes to character. You know, when it, in a book, it's all about internality. In a movie, it's all about subtext, right? You, you're looking at faces and you're seeing reactions. In a board game, I think where they excel is about modeling. I think a board game is really good at showing us sort of the physical world and the way that pieces connect. I, one example that I think is great is how, me, um, how many people know the map of the world because of risk? Yes. And, and because it gives you, it kind of teaches you certain truisms about the world that reading a book you might not quite get. I remember reading a book about like the Third Crusade. Right. And they talk about, oh, well, Richard could never have marched his army into such and such an area. And just reading the book, you can you can go, well, why? Why is that? But if you put that on a map and if you have a system where, oh, you need to feed your soldiers. Uh, and I'm thinking about Volko Runke's recent Levy and campaign series where <laughs> you you have to pay for the wagons and the sleds and everything to move your people. And you have to have provender. And let's say you go raid a castle and you get a bunch of cows. Well, now guess what? You're going to very slowly be retreating out of enemy territory. And because these things are written into a game, I think it actually illustrates something better than a book does. You, you can see the way that Australia is kind of isolated, or you can see the way that mountains really are hard to cross or mm-hmm. oh, a medieval army actually can't get very big uh, just because agricultural practices aren't supporting. No wonder Europe was a bunch of tiny little kingdoms. And, and, and this sort of uh, uh, this is all modeling. 
And it gives Mm -hmm. us a very different sense. We're not getting like direct human to human empathy all the time, but I think we are getting sort of a systemic empathy, which is one thing that I actually think we're very much lacking right now. I know in conversations about, um, in my faith tradition and, and, as ever, I, I want everyone to take this with a grain of salt. I'm not the best representative of the Mormon faith tradition. But um, my local stake, which is a group of wards or congregations, put on a, um, a meeting specifically to talk about women's issues. And the, specifically, the women's issue of women not having the priesthood because that is still an enormous hang-up in the Mormon faith tradition. And so I was invited to go because I had done a lot of my doctoral work on uh, the history of women in Christianity. And so our state president reached out and said, hey, uh, I know you are a little bit, uh, this is part of your career, would you like to come to this event and maybe help out with it? And I'm going, I don't think you're going to get what you're looking for from me, but, uh, you know, I'd be happy to come. And it ended up being a very raw experience. And the reason was, is, you know, you ask anyone in that meeting if they're a sexist, right? Or or you ask your average person if they're a racist. You know, do you hate black people? Do you think black people are less than? And, and most people are going to say no, right? You, you don't have that personal animosity. But then you ask a question like, well, are there systemic sexisms in our culture? or systemic racism in our culture. And many of those same people, at least in my experience, will, will say no. Right. Because they might have a lot of personal empathy or personal kindness. You know, they would never be rude or harm another person. But when it comes to a system, they don't have the empathy necessary to see that maybe the system has its own ingrained prejudices. And this is this is one of the things that happened at this women's conference as we were going. And, of course, a lot of men were willing to say, well, yeah, women should be able to be mothers or have a career or do anything they want. But then you ask them, well, should we legislate so that there's less of a pay gap for women? They're, well, oh, no, because there's no problem. So lots of personal empathy, not much systemic empathy. And I think that's one place where board games can really make up a difference. Uh, it can show us what a map is. It can show us why certain countries are maybe more bounteous than others. It can show us how logistics work. It can show us how an economic system privileges some over others. It can show us how an insurance company in having a flat evaluation system is accommodating of some and utterly unfair to other humans. I, I think that's tremendous. And board games are doing that in a way that is really pretty much unique to that medium. Hmm. Hmm. Which is why board games make the world better. I, I, I love that. This is so, no, this is, yeah, no, the, the thought of, them, of, of board games being especially well-designed to help us model ways of interacting with reality and um, maybe even kind of model both current reality but also envisioning maybe how reality could be. I think we can all agree that board games have a special place in the world of art. It's really exciting to see where they're headed now, correct? Is yeah. that fair? That, that they're um, continuing to innovate and think about morality and expansion and challenge us. So board games are awesome. And I do think that's in large part thanks to a very um, 
uh, thoughtful critics such as yourself, Dan. So it's it's just been a joy to have you joining us today. <laughs> well, that's kind of you to say. Thank yeah. you. No, I mean that. Yes. So, so if they want to follow up with Dan Thoreau, reach out and follow him on spacebiff.com, spacebiff.com, where a excellent newsletter comes out. And you can support his work there in terms of donations. And you can also listen to the podcast, Space Biff Podcast. Any other ways that folks can connect with you, Dan, that you'd um, like to share? I am on Twitter, at Dan Thoreau. I am not on the other socials. I can barely handle the one. Understand. <laughs> well, um, and... Uh, Dan, we would, uh, Kevin was saying this earlier, we would love to have you back, yeah, to talk about uh, board games and aesthetics and spirituality. And um, yeah, if we could could grace us with your presence again in the future, that'd be awesome. (laughs) I I would happily blacken your door once again. (laughs) Great. Well, we've, (laughs) this has been wonderful, Dan. Thank you so much. This has just been a very special episode. And thank thank you for having me. We're grateful. We're grateful. Um, Next week, our next episode, um, which is which will be in two weeks, um, we're going to be exploring spiritual lessons of cooperative games. Besides, just that cooperation is good. <laughs> <laughs> so, find out what other what other spiritual more sexy lessons are title from that. than that. But we're yeah, gonna... yeah, we need a, a, more, a more a better title. Um, but until then, um, Kevin, where can they find us? Where can our find wonderful listeners find us? Boardgamefaith.com and linktra.e slash board game faith linktree dot slash something how's it yep. work again linktree is so it's, cool it's, and so it's weird linktr.ee slash board game faith that's it that's yep. it yep and we're on instagram yep. and it's yep yep um you can email us at board game faith at gmail.com or info at board game faith.com we would love or to hear from you carrier penner carrier penner carrier pigeon towards missouri it may reach Daniel Helty. Yeah, please, care of the I will, parse the mats. I, I will be. I will be looking with my with my uh, with my carrier pigeon telescope to yes, uh, yes. for 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 it. Um, Dan, thanks again. This has been great. Um, we we're grateful for you and for the great work you're doing. Please, yeah, check out check out Space Biff. It's excellent. Yep. Um, and Kevin, thank you. And listeners, um, most of all, thanks thanks to you. We really appreciate your spending some time with us. And it is an honor and a joy and a privilege. And we're, we're grateful for uh, your taking a little bit of your day to hang out with us. That's right. Goodbye, friends. Bye-bye. Bye.